Well, there are a lot of common themes that sort of run throughout seminary, but one of them that you'll hear a lot about here is transition. Have you noticed that? Uh, It's probably because most folks in our community are either beginning or ending or in the middle of a transition of some kind. And for many of you, it's because you're on your way into something. You have answered a call into the ministry. And you've come to the seminary to answer it. You're on your way into something, headed for a vocation, and so you need an education. But on top of that, you need formation. What will you become here on your way to becoming something new? Before you know it, that transition has turned into a transition out. Suddenly, you're applying for graduation. You're looking towards what God will do with you now that seminary is done with you. And in between those two, we have all kinds of transitions, transitions of address, changes of family and marital status, changes in climate. Some of you have even changed degree programs while you've been here. Others have discovered, to your surprise, that you just love Greek. (laughs) Or ethics, or counseling, or missions. And you find yourself pouring into not just the required reading, but the recommended reading. And then going to the library to see if there's more reading to be done. And then asking yourself, who have I become? I would say most of our community is somewhere in the middle of one transition or another. And if you're in that sweet spot between arriving at seminary and changing your whole life and preparing to leave seminary and change your whole life, enjoy that 10 minutes apiece in the middle. (laughs) And if you thought your transitions were rough, just read the book of Daniel. If anyone needed a transition talk, it was Daniel. And if you think Asbury's degree programs are intense, try this one on for size. This is a method of education for you. Your city, destroyed. Your family and neighbors, killed, some of them. Your temple, desecrated, ransacked, and the sacred items within it carried off to Babylon. And then that's not the only thing carried off to Babylon. Your people are removed to Babylon, including you and your teenage friends who are swept away and taken to Babylon for reprogramming. What kind of transition is that? You get to stay in a palace, be given the best education, the best training available, offered the best food and drink the country has. It's possible the food is also sacrificed to idols, but that's neither here nor there. But while you're there, they will also change your name, which once reflected worship of the one true God, to now a new name that has embedded within it the name of an idol, a false God, so that every time someone calls to you, they are being called to worship a false God. Oh, and if you step out of line, they'll threaten you with death in the most unusual of ways, throwing you into fiery furnaces, putting you in a pit with hungry lions. How's that for a curriculum? I'll sign up for a 96-hour MDiv any day. When the Babylonians wanted to conquer the people of Judah, they had this really interesting strategy. It wasn't just enough to destroy their capital city, to desecrate their temple, to devastate their people and take many of them back to Babylon. To really win this battle, the Babylonians decided, they had to win over the hearts and minds of the next generation. 
And they knew somehow it wouldn't be enough just to make them slaves, to make them subservient. That had been done before by Egypt, by Pharaoh, and the people had just flourished and then been led right out generations later by God and with Moses' help. No, if you wanted to really conquer the hearts and minds of the next generation, don't make them serve you. you. You have to conquer them, but you couldn't just conquer them. You couldn't just capture them. You have to convert them. And that was their plan. And these Babylonian leaders strategically captured and took back to Babylon the best and brightest of young leaders to be engaged in this new curriculum, this program. They didn't treat them like prisoners of war. They didn't make them slaves. Instead, they set them up in the palace and gave them the best Babylonian education, the best Babylonian food, the best Babylonian religion, and worked on brainwashing them into true Babylonians. They knew if you can conquer the hearts and minds of one generation, you can take over the culture in that time span. And of the young men captured, the one we know the most about was Daniel. He was in his mid-teens somewhere when his city was overthrown by enemies. He was taken from his family to Babylon to be reprogrammed as an up-and-coming Babylonian leader. And he and his three friends are the only ones named for us. But Babylon tried to take that from them as well. They tried to take their names. See, their parents had worshipped Yahweh, the one true God, had given them names that would call people to worship God every time their names were spoken aloud. Names like Daniel, that means God is my judge, and his friends, Yahweh is gracious. Who is like God? Yahweh has helped. So for reprogramming, the Babylonians knew that just wouldn't do. You couldn't have those words spoken over and over again in this period of transition. And so Daniel became Belteshazzar, may Bel protect the king. And his friends, commanded by Aku, who is like Aku and servant of Nabu. These young men, these teenage boys, were renamed so that every time someone called out their new name, it was a call to worship a false god. And it's interesting to me that in Babylon's nice little cultural exchange program of re-education and reprogramming the next generation, the major focus is on worship. I mean, of all the things they did, it seems they put the most energy into thinking about worship. The most tension was around worship. The most conflict was about worship. Worship of false gods in the name that they were given, in the food that they were served. And the only life-threatening conflicts that they encounter are when they refuse to worship something that they're told to or when they worship something they're told not to. So Daniel's three friends refuse to bow down when a whole crowd is commanded to bow before a golden statue of the king. That rebellion is going to be pretty obvious. A crowd is gathered, loud instruments sound, a decree is given, and a whole multitude of people hit the pavement, bowing down in worship with only the three of them left standing upright. Talk about standing out in the crowd. Everyone bows but you. Daniel faces the opposite challenge. Instead of worshiping, he's commanded not to worship or pray to anyone but the king. How easy would it have been for him to just skip this prayer routine for a little while? Or maybe, maybe just close the shutters on your window, Daniel. 
Just don't let people see your prayer where you prayed three times a day facing out his window towards Jerusalem. Instead, we're told when he heard this decree, what did he do right away? He went back to his room, went to the open window where all could see, got down and prayed, giving thanks to God right before that open window, just, it says, just as he had done before. Daniel's pattern of prayer was the means of grace that was sustaining him in this foreign land, and he knew better than to let go of it. They could take away his city, his temple, his people, his freedom, but they could not dictate his worship. And when Daniel heard about a decree saying that prayer like this would put his life at risk, I'm not even sure he had to make a decision by that point. His decision to pray had already been made three times a day, every day. That decision to face that window and kneel down, that's what means of grace do for us. They they become well-worn paths that we walk with God. And if we practice them when things are easy, they'll be there to fall on when things get hard. It won't even be a decision. It's just what we do. Becoming a Babylonian meant worshiping what the Babylonians worshipped and not worshiping what the Babylonians weren't supposed to worship. If you didn't fall in line, you were likely to end up in a fiery furnace or as a midnight snack for lions. So to review the Babylonian wisdom, to conquer a culture, you need to take out its next generation. And to conquer a generation, you have to control what they worship. So while reprogramming will involve relocation, food, drink, leadership lessons, it's worship that the Babylonians monitor very closely. It's worship that brings death sentences, believe it or not. And if you weren't looking too closely at this program that our friends and many others like them were part of, in some ways, their life might sound a bit like a pampered foreign exchange student program until you get to worship. And then step out of line and it's into the fire or the lion's den for you. Idols are everywhere in the book of Daniel. False gods, not just inviting, but demanding worship, allegiance, sacrifice. Idols that have names like Bel and Aku and, ne- and Nebo. But besides those idols, there are kings that create idols to represent themselves. They demand worship by having people bow down to them. And, and that's not really a big stretch from telling people to worship an idol that you made of wood or clay or brass to actually saying, what I really want you to worship is me. Because worship of false gods is always a kind of self-worship. A false god is something we can control, something we can trick with our sacrifices or manipulate with our supplications. And worshiping something you can control is really, in a way, saying that you want to be god of your own life. So you keep your gods small enough to control. And in Babylon, little gods are everywhere in their names, at their table, in giant gold statues. But thankfully, Daniel and his friends have been trained up in the way that they should go. 
by parents who worship the one true God, parents who must have repeated until it was drilled into their heads, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I can only imagine that those words had been repeated to them and by them before the time that they were captured and taken away. And that, that commandment has sometimes thrown us off a bit in our Christian worship. There have been whole movements in the church that have insisted that not having an image that we worship also means not creating any visual representations in worship. In, in some places, that has led worship spaces to be bare of art, no statues, no paintings, no beauty that could distract or draw attention. But in other places, icons have developed. Images not meant to call attention to themselves, but to call attention to God. Some of those have been placed around us in worship today. And over the centuries, icons have been a visual sanctuary, a place for people to be drawn into visual worship. The, the purpose of an icon is not to invite us to worship it like an idol, but to draw our attention to God. Sometimes icons have helped tell a visual story in places where people were illiterate, or in our case, places where people are overliterate. Those that need a means of worship to rest our word-wearied minds, allowing us to feast our eyes on the story of God. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, where idols are a huge part of the Christian practice, these images of Christ or biblical stories or sometimes the saints of the church have been called at times windows into heaven, helping people to focus their prayers by focusing their eyes Imagine the stories of Scripture, connect with God, connect with the followers of God in the past and hear their stories. They are not meant for us to focus on them, but to see through them to the God that we worship. They're meant to be as transparent as the window that Daniel faced in prayer when he faced the direction of Jerusalem. That's curious, right? Hadn't Jerusalem been destroyed? At this point, abandoned, why face Jerusalem in prayer? It's one more icon, an icon of a city meant to draw people's attention to worship God himself. And even though it had been conquered and was laying in shambles, Daniel faced Jerusalem, another habit to draw his attention to the place where God had promised to be present with his people and thus know that God was present with Daniel. And you and I have icons in worship as well, even though we don't always have painted images like the ones here. Instead of worshiping in a blank or spare space, we have windows and candles, crosses and chalices to draw our attention to God. Music and silence can call us to listen to God. Bread and juice help us taste and see that the Lord is good. What is it that helps to draw your gaze to God? What brings you into focus when you worship? That for you becomes iconic, a means of making visible 
the invisible grace of God. But we also need to remember this. What starts as an icon can often slip and become an idol. What calls us to delight in God can sometimes end up being the object of our delight. You've probably heard plenty of sermons before about not letting anything take first place in your life over God. Luther's catechism said it this way, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God. But even in our worship, what starts as an icon sometimes becomes an idol. Anytime you think, I just, I can't worship in a place where they do that. Or, you know, I really only worship well when I have this. That's when you need to ask yourself, has it stayed an icon or has something become an idol for you? Has my focus become so nearsighted that I'm seeing the things, the means, and not the God that I'm supposed to look through? Is something blocking him in my worship? Tradition can become an idol. The phrase, we've always done it this way, can be a pretty demanding God. But innovation can be an idol too. Newness can be an idol. If we're convinced that something fresh or different or never before done in church idea will make our worship more effective or more powerful or more appealing, sometimes it slips from icon to idol. And while giving our best to God, our excellence is always a beautiful act of worship, if our attention gets so focused on making worship as perfect as possible, whether it's about the best music, the best sermon, the best sanctuary, the best can become an idol. My friend J.D. Walt used to say, you can get it all right and still get it all wrong. It's how these things call us to notice God, to stop and gaze not on them, but through them to the Lord that matters. And Charles Spurgeon's grandfather supposedly said, someone else might be able to preach the gospel better, but they can't preach a better gospel. That's what we're after, the gospel itself. If you find yourself feeling irritated in worship often, thinking of ways that things should or could be done better, these, these might be signs for you that you have chosen a God so small that you can control it. I once had a man at a church where I served as a pastor call me up and insist that we add a time of silent prayer into our worship services. I listened carefully and respected what he was asking, but I wasn't sure that this particular worship service was going to add regular silent prayer at that time. And when I shared that with him, he began screaming into the phone, raging at me. I was holding it away from my ear as he yelled, we have to practice silent prayer. Do you realize how important silent prayer is? Silent prayer has become the most crucial means of grace in my devotional life. I thought, how is that working for you? <laughs> what we worship will transform us to reflect it. And if we find ourselves transformed into something that does not reflect the image of Christ, we need to ask ourselves, what are we worshiping here? I really wish that idols came with a label. This one's for Bell. This one's for Nebo. This one's an idol to your own preferences, your own competencies, your own gifts. 
This one's really just an idol that lets you continue to worship you. But there are no labels. And even the good icons can turn on us. So search your heart. Confess to your small group. Find the little things that irritate you and find the root. Pay attention to what makes you feel a little more right, a little more superior, a little more like screaming into the phone, or maybe just smiling self-righteously because something you learned in seminary has taught you the right way. Label the idols and root them out. And as we focus this, this month on worship and coming to the table as often as we can, let's ask God to convict us of anything standing in the way of our worship, even if it is some aspect of worship itself that has slipped from icon to idol. We all have things that draw our attention away from God. Calvin told us that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. So friends, we're going to have to stay on top of this. The need to root out idols does not go away. And we're going to need to offer confession to God often, every time that little sense of irritation pops up. And we're going to need to receive his sweet forgiveness just as often. But those of us who lead in ministry and who are training to lead other people in ministry have to be especially vigilant. This is not only our own souls that are at stake. Watch what you're filling your heart with. Watch where your focus goes. Don't let yourself join in the vapid attempts to fill the church with anything except the convicting life-giving, repentance-inspiring power of the gospel. Only Jesus saves. Point people to him, and again and again with everything you have until pointing becomes the shape of your whole life and you find yourself an icon. John the Baptist had it right. You must decrease so that he can increase. You know, the Babylonians got a lot of things wrong, they were right about some of them. What you worship declares what has won you. And they knew they couldn't conquer the city. They couldn't win the battle until they had won the people's worship. So what is going to transform the hearts and minds of this generation and the next? Where is our focus, our gaze? You might be living in the heart of Jerusalem. You might be living in a distant exile in a place where idols are everywhere. But worship the one true God. Make it a well-worn path so that nothing else can stand in its way. And here's what I love about where Daniel's story ends up. When Daniel and his friends act in faithfulness, when they don't bend and bow and scrape before false gods, when they worship the one true God, even when it means facing furnaces and lions, instead of the Babylonians converting them, do you know what happens? The Babylonians become converted. King Nebuchadnezzar calls into the furnace, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. King Darius stands over the pit of lions and points people to worship God. He makes a new decree that everyone must worship the God of Daniel. He says, for he is the living God and he endures forever. This is a Babylonian king, folks. 
God's kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. This is the point at which Daniel and his friends have become icons. And those gazing on their faithfulness find themselves encountering the living God. Babylon thought they knew the trick of transition and transformation. And their curriculum for transformation had everything to do with worship. I pray that ours does as well.